0: On this episode of AV Week, Windows moves to the cloud. We break down the numbers of Infocom 2023 and backups and redundancies for critical systems. All that and more. Next on AV Week.
1: The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is 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 AV AV Nation. Nation.
2: This is AV Nation.
3: AV Nation is brought to you by Atlona, the go-to provider for AV signal distribution and control in corporate, higher education, and residential spaces. Learn more at atlona.com.
0: This is AV Week, Episode 619, recorded Friday, June thirtieth, 2023. Broken Enough. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news, and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host. We are back, tanned, and rested from Infocom 2023, but it's only two weeks out, so yeah, of course, we're going to talk about it. First and foremost, uh, people we have to talk about the news and information we've got this week, Kate Atkins from Root Integration, who I got to meet in real life at Infocom. Welcome, ma'am.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Also with us is a, an old friend. Uh, he's not old. He's not old. I've just known him for a long time. Mister Mike Brandis from Cusis.
3: Hey Tim, good to be on. I'm less than a year from my last one. <laughs> you stop it. Was it? Is it really? It's seven months. It's a it's a record for me.
0: That may be a record. Mitchell Mitchell will have to fix that. Uh, I say that as it's his fault. It's totally mine. Uh, also with us is David Title. David is from Bravo Media. Welcome, sir. Hey Tim, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so I mentioned Infocom. We were really are two weeks out from that, which it feels like it was yesterday as well as feeling like it was, uh, um, you know, six months ago. So first and foremost, our first story is going to be Infocom. Trade show attendance um, came out basically Friday afternoon, Friday evening, maybe Saturday uh, of, the, of the show itself. They had 29,000 verified attendees. Very quickly, a side note on that. I've had issues with with Evixa with in the past, you, you know, obviously we don't all agree on the same thing at the same time and we don't see eye to eye hundred percent. I have to give them credit for ver- doing this verified attendees the last couple of years. It's a push that they're doing, it is saying that this is how many people came to the show floor that were interested in the products, in the vendors, right? So 36,000 is what NAB would have said, right? Because that's the number of actual badges. Infocom and Avixa has made a point of saying this is the verified. Att- these are the people who are actual attendees, minus people like Brandis and me who had a t- who had exhibitor badges, right? So we don't count. Mike is what, is what I'm saying. So 29,000 verified attendees, significant jump from last year. We'll get to that in a second. 700 exhibitors, 156 um, AV professionals uh, obtained their CTS uh, that week. Show attracted a diverse range of industry professionals. Twenty percent were international. First-time attendees made up thirty-seven percent, which I think is a, is a huge number. And over twenty percent were end users. In 2022, Las Vegas show had 19,000 verified attendees. So pretty significant jump year over year. Mr. Brandis, you and I both had booths, uh, which means that we saw our you know our square and and no more. Uh, but from a numbers standpoint and from an industry standpoint, what does this jump to darn near 30,000 verifying attendees tell us?
3: Well, I can tell you we were so busy that I wasn't even allowed in my booth. I'd be taking up too much well, space. You know. So that's a good problem to have. I think it says that people are back and ready for live events. But I think anyone who's given that question would probably say the same thing. Um, seeing, uh, just doing some quick math here, I think we are up 10,000, so roughly uh increase over last year in Vegas, uh, Orlando's usually better attended anyways, but I think it's, um, to compare it to pre pandemic numbers, I think it's a little bit too premature, but I think it's good. It's exciting. And unlike other shows, I felt like there was a real energy on the floor. There was a real energy in the lobbies. There was a real energy in all the different events that I attended. So people were excited to get back in front of other people, uh, excited to conduct business with humans instead of portions of their screen, uh, so it was really exciting to, to kind of be back and just kind of ride then. Um, and the best part was there was no room for me in the booth, so I got to talk to people most of the time. My favorite thing to do.
0: I, I have to admit, I did not spend a whole lot of time in, in our booth as well. I was doing my day job, so um, running around and talking to the marketing person, people from from Q-SYS as well. Uh, Kate, um, integrator, uh, walking the show floor, but also obviously you know um, networking and stuff. What what did we learn the week of Infocom? Not just about, obviously, the, the gizmos and gadgets and, and the newfangled this, that, and the other, but also about the industry.
2: For me, uh, well, this is my first Infocom, so I don't really have a whole lot that I can compare it to. Um, but just based off of what I was seeing, I was really seeing, um, it, it kind of confirmed for me what I've been feeling lately, is that there's this divide that's happening um, in the industry between like the experiential stuff and like the, the conferencing is like the, the really simplified, um, almost com- kind of uh, commoditized stuff, right? So there were a ton of soundbars <laughs> that I saw on the show floor. Um, and then you had at the other end of that, you had the giant, impressive, you know, transparent OLED walls and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it seemed like there wasn't a whole lot that was like really in the middle, um, which was really interesting for me to see that kind of like split Um, And I'm also wondering if maybe part of the attendance increase is because it seemed like there was a lot more end user focus um, than what I was maybe expecting, um, which was really interesting, too. I know HETMA had a booth there and there was a lot of people there um, from the the higher ed space that I got to talk to in the education sessions and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it was it was very interesting. It was definitely an interesting thing for me to see as my my first time at Infocom.
0: Yeah, it was you well, you're one of those one of those 36% that, that it was the, your the, your first time. 100% agree on the on the end user focused. Uh Avixa made a point of saying that a number of times over the last 6 months in various articles. David from from your perspective and and you know where where you sit in the industry, what did we see? I mean um, Kate mentioned my favorite thing on the show for which is the transparent OLED just because of, I love OLED and just because I love that specific product from LG the installation and the demonstration they did um, was akin to taking several... No, akin, this is what they did. They took several um, transparent OLEDs next to each other, almost like a storefront window, right? That, that was kind of the, the experience there. And then put the content on it. And obviously, they the content they created and they, they had, what had different varying levels of opacity. So they could demonstrate the fact that, hey, this really is... A piece of glass that you can see through um and and have this experience for for your clients and obviously that that very very much leans into into retail uh but from your standpoint and, and and what sort of canvases did you see
1: well i think it was interesting you know i i was there both to check stuff out see people i hadn't seen since before the pandemic which becomes a longer and longer time uh but also you know i was speaking as well on a panel about immersive experiences and and Uh, which had quite a lot of folks from that end user category attending as well. And I think a lot of what drove attendance and some of the energy there uh, in general is how much broader the environment is for AV uh, integration across environments. So part of how Bravo got so involved in this world from coming out of more of a animation and event background is that Spaces from retail to hospitality to hospitals to commercial spaces, corporate spaces, everyone is beginning to see the opportunity and the technology is now there to support enhancing these environments in dynamic ways. And obviously, uh, the the foundation of that is the hardware and the systems that are going to run it. And so I definitely felt there were people coming from a lot of different angles and a lot of different uh, use cases and desires walking around at Infocom than you know five years ago, which is probably the last time I was in attendance in, in Orlando.
0: I, I will give some some props out to to a friend, uh, Mark Coxon, who now works for ABASPL's Experiential Design Group. Their their booth and their display, their their demonstration, was phenomenal. Right, and and back to Kate's point for a second about it being you know on one end very much experiential that's what what spl did especially the the, the uh the design group uh Coxon was there julian uh was there a number of their of their principals in the design group were there showing off some of that experiential uh experiential magic uh as it were so yeah absolutely
1: you know one of the obviously part of how part of again back to the the energy and the feeling on the floor part of that is you know if you're trying to stand out on that floor, it's become more of a challenge and and the booths themselves need to be more experiential regardless of the product uh, in many cases. And honestly, you know, your led display is only going to look as good as the content that's on it and the experience that's being created around it. And so I think there was more energy being put into that uh, across the board uh, and many fewer Booths and displays that were just, uh, you know, a poster on a table. That's
3: for sure. On that topic, I think you know it's amazing to see the transformation in our industry from the, uh, you know, folding accordion magazine catalog uh, days when I started going to Infocom, which was not that long ago, and the grand history of Infocom, to some of the stuff we saw on the show floor today. We saw a lot of, um, you know, booth that had gigantic led screens that's easy to draw the eye to uh you know virtual broadcast studios you know dooh advertising you name it that's easy but some of these other you know ones that aren't so easy you see a lot of products stacked up next to each other you see a lot of labels you see a lot of cut sheets and there's someone standing next to a table almost like hey is there something you want to buy from my stall here at the cool av flea market that we're all attending Um, so it's kind of really nice as I was able to kind of venture through the show floor, those that did it really well, didn't necessarily show their product or talk about their product. There was a lot of stations where maybe their product was in use. There were a lot of miniature applications or vignettes set up to tell people how they might experience their product in the wild. Um, you know, our booth was kind of a, Disney ride where you went through a few different stations and then you exited through the gift shop. And that was really cool, but it kind of reminds me of some other things that you've seen throughout, you know, the history. I think Harmon did it a few years ago with their kind of no product, no technology, just experiences. And kind of getting back to that, ultimately system integrators buy products to fulfill customer experiences. And that's really important. But as a focus on end customers uh, emerges, right? I think we said 20% uh, the total population of the show was end users, 36% first-time attendees, right? Was that, were those the numbers? Yeah. I think I roughly have them right. Um, it's a good time in our industry for people's first experiences uh, and end users' experiences to be how the technology accomplishes a problem, not what speeds and feeds do you have and what color black is your black box this year.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that was something that I was really looking forward to as my first time going is is what I wanted to see on the floor was I wanted to see um, how can I use these products and like give me examples. that like kind of give me that inspiration. Um, one of the things that I saw and it was, you know, maybe something that I would never like really use in my day-to-day job because we just don't do this. But I think Epson had like a little projector that was shooting down on the floor and it was like directing you through the booth. And I'm like, things like that, just like that little, that little thing, like it's, it just gives me a thought that I never had before. Um, and just a different way to use your project, a different way to, to see your product too.
0: Uh, All right, our next story comes to us from our friends over at AV Magazine. A catastrophic failure of a control room transceiver resulted in the complete shutdown of the Dutch rail system. Reminds me uh, back to our days at at ISE, Mike. Um, Causing widespread disruption, the incident exposed the vulnerability of critical infrastructure to technical glitches and raised concern about the robustness of control systems. The transceiver malfunctioned, leading to the loss of communications between the control rooms and the trains bringing the entire rail network to a standstill. Thousands of passengers were, passengers were stranded and delays rippled across the country's transportation network. Uh, the incident serves as a stark reminder of the importance of maintaining and fortifying essential infrastructure to prevent such catastrophic failures from occurring in the future. If you have ever been to Amsterdam or if you've been to ISC uh, prior to being in Barcelona, you understand the, the use case and, and, and the ubiquitousness of those trains, whether that's the metro or the trains that go, you know, uh, city to city. Kate, I'm going to start with you on this. Kate's an incredible programmer. This is hundred percent in my brain, a control and automation story. One of the things that the article points out is the, the, the um, reminder that backups and redundancies are important. Okay. Start with that. Not to be silly, but redundancy means buying multiple pieces of the same gear. Yep. How do you get clients to understand that and 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 quite literally buy into the idea of having redundant systems?
2: Yeah. I mean, when I first read this article, the first thing that came to my mind was that IT team had a terrible day, right? Um, yep. And and I think it's just something that they, when you're talking to customers about it, you got to consider how critical is this function? Like how how bad of a day are you going to have if this whole thing just, you know, falls down? You know, you might be able to get away and, um, you know, maybe a basic room or something like that. If that's down for a day, you can move a meeting or whatever. But if you have something that's running your whole head end, you know, your whole environment, um, if it's a, a a really critical function, if it's in, a, you know, like a knock or something like that. You got to have that redundancy there because, you know, electronics are electronics. Electricity does funny things sometimes. You know, sometimes things fail and and nobody can predict it. You got to have that stuff on hand um to be able to swap, um preferably to be able to automatically roll over and uh keep you going without any like real downtime. Um but the other thing that I saw in this in this article, too, that I thought was really interesting was uh, the one quote that usually you get a notification if it breaks, then you know where the problem is, but this wasn't broken enough. And I think that was also uh, a very interesting quote in there. Um, and I think it's also, it goes to, it's not enough just to have the backups and the redundancies, but you also need to have ways to know what exactly the problem is. I mean, it took them, what, 15 hours to find that it was this one little broken piece. I mean, why did it take 15 hours? You know, they, they clearly didn't have the right notifications, they didn't have enough information from the system to understand what was really happening. Um, and it's really important to get that as both from a programmer side, you know, we need to make that available uh, in our systems, but also, you know, the manufacturers working with them, you know, giving the us, you know, that that information and that feedback back so we can uh, act on these things and have useful information to to maintain these systems.
0: All right, David, Kate alluded to this. I I tell my team all the time, you know, this is not, you know, nobody's going to die. This this is not rocket surgery. There are elements, though, that we put in, things like NOx, things like, you know, command and control centers that are incredibly crucial. Train systems, getting people from point A to point B and not stranded in the middle of nowhere. So, as you guys are, are talking about, not just the art, but also the infrastructure and keeping those systems up and running you know how do you get clients to understand the importance of redundant systems
1: it's really complicated and you know again this goes back to the thing where those end users are really getting so widespread uh you know one of the interesting things that we've been trying to figure out and solve for for instance in the retail spaces. is you know, you can kind of get away with doing a very cool and, you know, intensive experience within a flagship space. But then if there's a desire to take some element of that and roll that into 500 doors across America, the support systems that exist for that within that industry are very limited versus let's say you're doing a corporate rollout of, you know, 500 conference rooms, they're going to have an IT department of some kind, and they may not be Able to deal with everything, but there's some internal support there. So a lot of it is figuring out kind of who's involved from that end user side and who needs to get involved to support that. And we've been doing a lot of outreach to integrators, to folks on the installation side, on the service side, to really understand how we can best engage them when we have clients that are looking to expand or improve on their overall digital environment, uh, what does that really require? How do we get that to them uh, so that they do have the right mix? And, you know, I don't really think, we we have a client that I'm not going to name uh, in the retail space with, you know, not huge, let's say 10 doors uh, across the U.S. and Canada. And the last time we did a content update for them, we mailed thumb drives to each location. Um, So... You know, it's it's more than baby steps for a lot of these places to go from yeah. wherever they are to being in a place where they can actually get the value out of the hardware they have in that place. Because the system that runs it, how it runs, who runs it, who keeps it running, uh, is everything between whether or not you're getting any value out of that final display or whatever it is that, that's showing out to the world.
0: It's what we used to call sneaker net, David. <laughs> um, we'll run it from one place to another. Brandis, uh, from a manufacturing standpoint, you know, Kate mentioned the fact that, that they didn't know for 15 hours where this one piece was broken. What what can manufacturers do to not only, you know, put things into place into their systems and their hardware and software, but also educate integrators to educate the, the end user?
3: Yeah, before we get there, I do want to point out a few things. They had a failover network set up somebody, somewhere else. They were able to move things along. This is not a... Uh, fly by the seat of your pants, do it yourself, install, and it still experience failure. So all systems are subject to failure, first of all, whether or not we're talking about AV systems, in this case, uh, train automation systems, think about databases being corrupted, causing flight delays, yada, yada, yada on people's old school, you know, redundancy and resiliency is really just an intent uh that needs to be made by the end user in many cases it's sometimes the first thing that gets tossed off the table when it comes time to value engineer and the intent that they're saying is it's better to be affordable than reliable in many cases swapping out sub power components uh like the gentleman in the article alluded to there uh, of course with uh, inexpensive transceiver modules you know creating a really expensive problem uh it's A joke saying, but one that's pretty common is it costs a lot of money to save money. And, uh, you know, this is a great example of it. I don't know what the component differential of this piece could be, but I'm sure it is not equal to 15 hours of delays and people's times troubleshooting and 750 canceled trains and passengers overnight. And the list goes on and on and on. So that let's sub a $180 component cost out created tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars of downstream impacts. And no one ever thinks about that. So resiliency and reliability are definitely an intent that need to be brought to the table by the end user. On the manufacturing side of things, I think it's about providing, uh, you know, as many opportunities for those type of things to be brought into um, discussions, whether it's having multiple paths to the same product from a network standpoint. Uh, multiple fail-safes within a product. I mean, you know, as everything turns into more software-driven, it's less about, you know, the electrical voltage tripping this transistor and, you know, your Rube Goldberg of electricity uh, within a product. It's more about, you know, having watchdog timers and things like that that someone like Kate could speak way more knowledgeably about than I can. Um, But knowing that you're going to fail no matter what you do is the first step. Resolving your failures, as many of them as you can find, is your next step. And I think that's kind of what your manufacturing partners, your technology providing partners, and even your system integrators can bring to your end customers. Here are the ways that everything can go wrong. Uh, we think about this nonstop because it costs us money. It keeps us up at night. And that's the reason why I'm only 17 and I look this bad because I'm so worried about this phenomenon. So how do we eliminate those uh, issues for our customers and for our customers' customers?
0: You look really good for 17, I'm just saying. Um, All right, last story. Microsoft plans to bring Windows 11 to the cloud, making it accessible to users worldwide. This move aims to revolutionize the user experience by offering cloud-based access to the popular operating system. Users would be able to access Windows 11 from any device, eliminating the need for specific hardware requirements or expensive upgrades. Microsoft's vision for cloud-based Windows 11 reflects their commitment to inclusivity and adaptability in the digital landscape, potentially opening up new possibilities for users uh, globally. Nothing in the article about Update Tuesday, though. I didn't, I didn't see that. So, David, first question here. What are the dangers of moving AV and content and all the things into the cloud?
1: Uh, that it all goes away like a poof. I think that's the big danger, Um, you know. Right? Yeah, you know. Look, I, uh, I was, I was actually, I was thinking uh, because I'm, you know, I've had, I got a little bit of fresh air once or twice when I was young, so I'm a little, might come across a little younger than I am. But I, you know, I remember when we had terminal computers, uh, and you basically were, it wasn't quite, we didn't call it the cloud, and it wasn't quite as fancy, but you had this.
0: Sort of dumb thing at the it end. Main frame. In... It was a mainframe. It was a, main frame. Frame. It was a main, yeah. big, big ass computer somewhere in the building. Yeah,
1: but your computer wasn't. You didn't have your own computer. No, no, no Actually, I was a dummy. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, to deliver the kind of experiences that we all are going to want to deliver through these different uh, uh, displays and integrations, you're not going to be able to do this locally. It's just, it's not going to be a thing. Uh, and, and so to some degree, this is moving to the cloud and, and who's, you know, whose cloud uh, and, 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 you know uh, what happens when the cloud goes away and, and uh, you turn on your machine and there's nothing there. Uh, you know, I, I worry, you know, I think about that with, you know, everybody on Gmail, uh, you know. Um, you know, or, you know, let's, you know, or your bank. Um, but anyway, um, but, but I do think that, uh, to some degree there, there's some thought to be given to what is your fallback? Yeah. How important is it? You know, if you do lose everything, how, if your screens go dead or your displays go dead or your communication goes dead, how important is that? And then, uh, what's the minimum solution? What's your minimum solution that you can have in place as
3: a worst case scenario?
0: Yeah. All right, Brandis. Uh, what are the benefits of taking everything to the cloud?
3: It's really funny we're having this conversation right after talking about redundancy and resilience. I, died, I, died, I, died, I thought so. Look at you planning this out. I do, I do think I do think smart every once in a while, dude. I love it. Um, yeah, it's great until it's not great. And you know, as the saying goes, "There's no cloud; it's just somebody else's computer." Right, we to whether it was the terminal to the mainframe days, or whether it was the wonderful world of thin clients and edge computing in the 2013 to 2017 realm, and now this is just a, another flavor of the same cake here, where the mainframe is now in someone else's computer somewhere across the world, and you're accessing it with whatever thin client device you're already holding your iPhone, your Android phone. I don't know, there's not enough information here to really understand what's going on, but. The benefits are great. You don't need a separate computer to do X, Y, and Z. I use a Mac computer, and I have a virtual machine of Windows embedded on my computer. But there's plenty of times where all I want to do is just move two blocks in Visio, and I don't want to run back into my office to get the Mac computer. I've got a phone. I've got uh, you know, an iPad. There's many ways I can get to a web browser or any other application. And it just makes it a little bit easier. Uh, when we talk long arc about our industry, uh, the global technology industry, I won't limit it to just AV, we generate a lot of pollution, we generate a lot of landfill items, we generate a lot of hazardous materials just so that way we can have a unique device that does this, any unique device that does that. So I'm sure this first implementation is not going to be a home run. They rarely are. Um, But what I will say is I love the intention of let's not have purpose-built devices where we can avoid them let's combine as much functionality into devices as possible. I mean, none of us are carrying around a separate digital camera, you know, tape player, maybe Tim, you are, um, you know, Atlas, uh, you know, flashlight, uh, magnifying lens, right? We use a phone for all that. And that's an example that's kind of become exhaustive over time, but it's a good And that it's all transitioning towards fewer things, which I think in general is important as we talk about, the just sheer amount of crap that we've generated that sits in landfills and processing centers and things like that, because every two weeks you need a new phone to run the latest iOS or every, uh, four years, you can no longer use windows on a device that doesn't have like supercomputer uh, components in it. So I'm sure there's going to be a performance trade off. Like there always is right. Like, okay, I can't do, you know, I don't know. Bitcoin mining on my iPhone running in a virtual container or whatever people do. Um, but for the vast majority of people, it really represents a trashless opportunity to use Windows, which is pretty cool.
1: The, 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 the one thing I would say, and the thing that we, we surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, continue to run into a lot is in terms of that ground level infrastructure for carrying data uh, and network. Uh, is almost never there uh, to do the things they'd like to be able to do via cloud, uh, you know, and so I think looking at what you're, you know, what are you delivering just in terms of bandwidth and network access, you know, you, you need a big pipe to do all this stuff and and a lot of places aren't doing that and so are having to almost go back in after the fact when they realize, oh, we thought this thing could, you know, we thought we'd be able to do all of this stuff, but it turns out that, you know, the break point's much earlier down in the chain.
0: Yeah. And one of the things, and this is not a political statement, so don't send me mail on this, uh, the government in, in the U.S. is doing some infrastructure um, updating to rural areas, right? Now, this is where I, I, I play the big dumb American. Other parts of the world, they got us beat when it comes to, to speeds, on infrastructure, right? They in, in certain parts, right? You start moving out into the rural areas of Wyoming, right? Or even here, I mean I, I live in St. Louis. There are parts of Missouri uh, and parts of Illinois that do not have high speed access. Yes, they're role, yes, you're talking about farmland and, and woods, but those people still need, you know, they they still need Windows eleven. They still need access to things. And so the government is doing something similar to what they did in the seventies when they rolled out cable access. Uh, to to, to uh, places where according to the businesses it was not financial financially viable so that, that'll at least you know offset some of that
3: I think it's great to think about that again in terms of a progression like we're not mm-hmm. waiting till every piece of the puzzle gets solved to do something about it there's yeah. a lot of these you know big ticket things that need to get going or need to be done if we can be honest a while ago that we've often thought of, well, there's a such case, there's that, and yes, people in certain places can't access it. But having the intention to solve for those problems over a period of time, I think really creates uh, a wonderful opportunity moving forward, because that's gonna enable this, that's, that will be an enabling technology for this, which will be an enabling technology for the reduction in consumption, which will mean less trash, which will mean fewer you know big gigantic trash heaps which is the only way you get to play elevated golf in florida by the way is when they build a golf course on top of an old trash heap so pulling that back around to infocon in orlando um and that's all i got to say
0: all right kate you'll last word on this what what are the what are the pros what are the cons what do you think about moving av uh to the cloud uh,
2: well, i think there's there's several different things to consider um I, and I think we're already moving that way. I mean, if you if you think about a lot of places, you know, we have a control system, you have one that's kind of like the brains and that lives in maybe a head end somewhere and is running, you know, maybe 50 rooms, right? You can run all sorts of rooms off of it. So it's not that much of a leap from that model to doing something cloud-based. Um, I think it does depend on what we're talking about we're putting in the cloud. Uh, I think, you know, definitely um, situations where you need low latency and you need, um, you know, maybe a security concerns like that stuff's not going to go to the cloud probably. That that stuff's going to be all local still. Um, but something like your control system, you know, that that could very easily move into a cloud-based format. Um, and I think there's there's definitely different things to think about there too, is in terms of, um, you know, the monetary, you know, way that things work. You know, it's if you're moving to the cloud, maybe you're moving to a subscription model, right? So you're, instead of having, you know, this is my capital expense, I'm going to put in this conference room, I'm going to pay, you know, X amount of dollars for this one-time purchase, you know, maybe that's a, a recurring thing. And now you're, you're subscribing to that conference room thing, right? And, and if somebody stops paying their bills, you know, just like Teams, if you stop paying for that Teams license, it doesn't work anymore.
0: Hey, you, you, I, I was with you up until then. And, and I say that <laughs> as the guy who runs marketing at CTI, I freaking hate hate my monthly bill to adobe creative cloud and i do because i am old enough to remember when i bought freaking you know premiere 1.0 for however many 50 bucks or whatever how many floppy
3: disks did that come on they
0: were big floppy disks i 100% <laughs> and i held on to it until i wanted the upgrade right and then i purchased the new one right and you're right. You you are absolutely right. And 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 every you know commercial integrator and 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 rave and other smart people have written about how the the AV industry needs to move to you know AV as a service. But as as one of the folks who pays for the freaking crap every it pisses me off.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I mean the rest of the world is there. I mean you know every every TV channel you want to watch these days is a subscription service, right? I mean there's what BMW is making you know heated seats a subscription. So, I mean, that's that's the way. Five
1: bucks a month. Cancel any time. Yeah. Greatest business proposal of in the history of the yep. world. And,
2: and I mean, it changes the way that clients might be budgeting, yeah. too. Right. Because now it's not, you know, this big one time expense. It's just an ongoing operating cost. So it changes things there, too. That dynamic changes a little bit. Um, but then I think it also puts more uh, of a duty on you know integrators like us if we're going to move in that kind of uh, manner to actually continue updating and evolving systems the same way the rest of the software world software world works um, and you can't it can't just be like we put it in and we walk away and we never touch it again it, there has to be that continuing um, added value throughout the lifetime of that subscription and you know to keep people paying for Absolutely. it otherwise they're just gonna drop it like they drop Netflix
0: all right. That'll be a good place to stop. Mr. Brandis, thank you, sir. Good to see you. I'll have you back on in three years. Look forward to it. How do people get a hold of you or QSIS?
3: You can find QSIS online at Q-Sys.com, Q-SYS.com. I am not online. I'm on LinkedIn. So if you're okay. looking to hang out and see what post I like, you can find me on LinkedIn. All right.
0: Very good. Kate, very nice to have you on this program. Like I said, she's been on Steve's uh, program a couple times, and I got to meet her in, in real life at Infocom. So how do people connect with you uh, or Root Integration?
2: Uh, you can go to our website, RootIntegration.com. Uh, email me, Kate, at RootIntegration.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, um, and I'm on Twitter. You can find me there just about every Sunday for A, B, in the A.M. Uh, my handle is code underscore Kate. And I also have a YouTube series that I just started called User-Friendly AV. So if you're a programmer and you want to like learn some more about UX and UI design, uh, I've been kind of putting together some stuff for that. So you can check that out too. Very
0: cool. Uh, david, nice, nice to have you uh, here. How do people get a hold of you or Bravo Media? Yeah, great to be with everyone today. Uh, you can find
1: us at bravomedia.com, and I'm a pretty heavy LinkedIn user and like to check stuff out and post some stuff and connect with folks there. And you can also throw me an email at david at com, and uh, I gave up on Twitter.
0: Uh, for me, for Tim Albright, do not follow me on the Twitters or LinkedIn or anywhere else, but go by our website, aviation.tv. That's aviation.tv. You'll find this program and a host of others. I mentioned State of Control that Kate's been on a couple of times. That's Steve Greenblatt's show, uh, Women in AV. Uh, check out Jennifer Goodyear and uh, Erica Carroll, uh, also uh, EdTech and XR Star. And according to Mitchell, um, they recorded an episode of Architect this week. So that's exciting. Uh, My buddy, uh, Brian Hardgerken, uh, who works with architects and the AIA uh, is bringing that back. uh, and He's starting to interview some architects on how the architecture and the AV can work together. So I'm very excited about that coming down the pipeline. So uh, travel and other shows coming up. We just mentioned Infocom, Cedia, Cedia Expo is coming down the pipeline as well as CI Expo. So I will be there um, the 13th, I think of, um, no, Sorry, my notes are early. 7th of September, 7th through the 9th of September in Denver. And then I will be at UCX USA the 13th through the 14th uh, of September in Austin. Apparently, I'm not going to be home at all in September. Uh, So lastly, I I meant to mention this at the beginning. If you're watching the video, if you're not watching the video, you can stop listening now because I'm going to talk about video. Uh, Behind me is a big blue square Mitchell, my fantastic editor and producer, came up with the idea of, hey, we should put a video wall behind you. So that's what that is. It's the outline for our video wall. It should be up either next week or week after next. Um, so I'm kind of excited about it because it's cold in here and, you know, the heat and everything else. It's a bad joke. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so check that out. So all that and more at avianation.tv. That's avianation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That is the whole time we have for AV Week. Thank mm-hmm. <laughs> you.